Club Podcast. On this episode, the second part of our interview with the men who created Jaguar's lightweight E-Type. Hello, I'm Wayne Scott, and this is the Jaguar Enthusiast Podcast. Hope you're very well. Hope you've dusted off your Jaguars ready for the summer that's nearly upon us. And I hope you're ready as well for Simply Jaguar, the big event for the Jaguar Enthusiast Club here in the UK. We've teamed up with Bewley, the big National Motor Museum down on the south coast of England for their Simply Jaguar Day. And it's all going to be set in the stunning surroundings of the House and Museum there. They've been very popular, these past events, over the last few years. They've grown and grown in popularity. And we're expecting over a thousand Jaguars to join us on the 25th of June this year, which is a Sunday. And the sun is booked, by the way, I promise. Uh, we're going to be celebrating the 75th anniversary of the XK120 the 10th anniversary of the F-Type and also loads of other anniversaries as well. Uh, the XJ Coupe has its anniversary this year. It's the 40th anniversary of the XJS Cabriolet and the launch of the six-cylinder XJSs as well. The X350, the first of the all-aluminium body Jaguars in mainstream production. That's an anniversary we're celebrating this year as well. And of course, way back to the 1960s, celebrating the S-Type Saloon, a pivotal part in Jaguar's history that happened 60 years ago. And I want one. It's on my list to own is an S-Type Jaguar. I'm saving up. I'm putting the pennies in the piggy bank and one day it's going to happen. So if you know of a nice one, do let me know. I must not get distracted by surfing eBay and looking at other things for sale in the meantime. Must focus on my S-Type. Anyway, enough of my problems. Uh, do join us at Simply Jaguar this year. Very easy to book. You can book your tickets online to be a part of all those celebrations and more by going to the events pages at jec.org.uk. Just click on the events button there. Or actually, you can go direct to the Bewley website and buy your tickets from there as well. So if you go to the events section of the Bewley Motor Museum website, you can buy your tickets just as easily. So the main thing is get your tickets now. Come and join us in the sunshine at the National Motor Museum in Bewley for Simply Jaguar. It's going to be a big event this year. And from a big event then to a big podcast as we go into part two of my interview with the team that produced the E-Type Lightweights back in 1963. This was the first time, by the way, that this team had been reunited in its entirety since 1964. And we interviewed them in the plush surroundings of the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust building at the British Motor Museum in Gaydon. It was a really unique opportunity and I'm really pleased to be sharing it with you. I hope you enjoyed part one on the previous episode. You can still listen to that, of course, at jcpodcast.co.uk or by looking at the previous episode to this on the feed on whatever aggregator you use to listen to the podcast, be it Apple or spotify or of course google podcast or any of the others you can find it all there this is part two on this episode and of course we are rejoined by the team that consists of peter wilson the author and former jaguar competitions department engineer he helped build the cars at browns lane and would accompany them especially for wpd the first one to test sessions and race meetings he's also the author of the book that this interview celebrates of course which you can buy through all the normal outlets strictly no admittance which is his account of the days working for the competitions department at browns lane frank philpot is also with us former jaguar experimental engines department engineer roger shelbourne the former jaguar competitions department technician and also the man that knew the fabled body man bob blake the best i think we talk about that in this episode Brian Martin, former Jaguar Experimental Department electrician, he was responsible for wiring all of the lightweights and, by the way, the XJ13 as well. And we start our conversation where we left off in part one, deep in chat with Jerry Beddows, the former design and development engineer. He joined Jaguar in 1948, an extremely talented mathematician who worked on the C-type, the light alloy prototype, the D 
D-Type and made very significant contributions to Jaguar's engine programs, as we're about to hear. He became Chief Engine Development Engineer in the early 70s before moving to more senior positions in other areas of the motor industry. We pick up then where we left off in part two of our interview with the men behind the lightweight Jaguar E-Types. Enjoy. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. I get the feeling, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, we're trying to understand what it was like to be an engineer working your way through the career, but... When I do these interviews and I talk to people like yourself, Jerry, I, I sort of liken it to modern day times where um, young people aspire to be the next YouTube star or the next social media star. Back then, it feels like instead of that, it was the next big engineer working working for for a big brand. Did it feel like that at the time? Well, no, because you know I was only in my very early twenties. Now I was sort of green by behind the ears uh, compared with most people around the company. So I think I was just a kind of tool, a slide wall pusher, if you like, that Bill Haynes made use of when necessary. So I, I, I got involved in anything that needed calculation, whether it was engine components, uh, say, chassis, suspension, um, and, and you know, a certain amount of drawing work as well. Mm-hmm. And did you end up with working, as you did later on for Jaguar, in, in the engine development by um, a, a drive of your own to get into engine work, or was it just the route that Jaguar... No, no, I, 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 I'm just interested in any, any solving any problems, really. Yeah. I mean, I did my national service, 55 to 57, came back more or less in my old position in the design office. And uh, I worked on the Mark 10 uh, front suspension then. But I was having to calculate suspension stresses with no input of actual loads. So it, it was sort of rule of thumb and guesswork. Yeah. Um, no computer model in there. No, no, no. <laughs> but I could see that that was coming in. When being a member of the Mechie, I used to see papers from other companies who massive in, instrumentation departments and so on. And when it, in uh, 1960, um, I was offered a job at uh, uh, AE Group Research in Corston, setting up to do just the sort of things that I wanted to get in, involved with. Um, I took it, so I went to Bracker for four years, or to, to AE for four years, and then we, we, we got um, two, two cars on the road. One was a, a Ford Classic, which, which was our main development, uh, Mule, if you like, but also a 300 SL. Mm, nice. Um, that, that a colleague, in fact, on the project was very persuasive. He persuaded the management that we should fit our system to a car that was already equipped with fuel injection uh, for comparison purposes. So we went out and bought a 300 SL, as one does, uh, and equipped it. Well, it, would, it was after... We got through the early development stages on that project that um, my engineering colleague there had vanished off to the States, which is a, a, another story. Um, I wrote to all the chief engineers of our prospective uh, customers, Aston Martin, Ford, uh, Standard Triumph, Jaguar, of course, inviting them to come and, and try the car. And it was while I was out driving Bill Haynes and Wally Hassan um, that Bill Haynes said, well, are you satisfied with the project? Well, I, I did have misgivings, as I mentioned Peter, about the validity of the, the patents because Bosch had bought patents from an American company, Bendix, who originally developed some electronic fuel injection. And they were so broad in their basic first paragraph that you could pour petrol into an engine from a bucket and, and it was again contravening their patents. So I had misgivings about that. Slight misgivings about the project going to Brico 
who, very skilled in pistons and centering, had no experience that I could see at that time in, in, in field injection. So when Bill Haynes said, well, I've got something that might interest you, I said, well, yes, what is it? And it was um, um, a liaison engineer between Jaguar and an, Ameri uh, an Italian engineer, Maddalini, who had developed an uh, infinitely variable hydrostatic transmission. So for the next four years, I was backwards and forwards to Rome and uh, following that project, which is an entirely different story. What sort of year are we talking then that you would have shown all of those industry leaders that fuel injection technology? That would have been 64, early, early 64. Yeah, early on. And, and then amazingly, it would be Lucas that would finally bring it to market it, well, in the Triumphs. It, it was, it was. And in fact, I think we were beginning to talk to Lucas even in the Corston days. And certainly, I know when he went to Brico, you, you Yeah, well, that was when I went to Brico. Yes. Because I went to Brico in 1966. Yes. And I think the only reason that they had me was because I knew a bit about the Lucas system. Yes. <laughs> and um, the project moved from Corston to, to Brico, and we built it up to quite... In, and we had development contracts with a whole raft of companies, uh, from Rolls-Royce, Fiat, Rover, Aston Martin, Jaguar... Um, and one or two other, oh, Fiat, uh, sorry, Ferrari with mm. the Ferrari Dino. And in fact, we were in small-scale production with Aston Martin in 1970. Yeah, 1970. And we got a, um, a significant um, order from Jaguar for the V12. Mm. And we had, in fact, the V12 engine in the XJ6. We had a, a development car. It was a real flyer. It really was. It gave something like about 350 horsepower on the test bed. Mm. And it, was, it was brilliant. We then had a, another one, which is the dark blue car, Jerry, the one that you yes. are familiar with, which was supposed to be like a pre-production prototype, if you like, Yes. Uh, with our best shot at it. I had to run this car over a weekend to, uh, uh, as a final sort of sign-off sort of exercise with um, uh, before he went to Jaguar. Oh, dear, there were a few things on it. I mean, really, the whole thing was a fire hazard. And not necessarily because of the brachio injection, but there were two silencers at the back of the car that ran in, um, they were tucked up inside and they encroached into the into the luggage trunk area. Well, if you went to the chip shop, you didn't have to worry about the chips going cold. You just put them in the boot. It was red hot. Yeah. And they also, there was so much heat developed under the bonnet that the battery boiled dry and the electrical connectors, remember those little plastic sleeves over Lucar connectors, mm. they shriveled up. That's why we had to put a fan on the battery. The put a fan on the battery, that's right, Brian. Yes, they had to put a fan on the battery. But unfortunately, Rolls-Royce went to the wall at the beginning of 1971 and the AE Group, which was big in engine componentry, it was really big, caught an awful cold um, to the tune of about, and don't laugh, seven or eight million pounds, which is nothing today, but then was have bought the whole of the AE company more or less, and they had a, in, a, in, a, in a fit of a knee-jerk reaction, the main board decided to close down all the then current non-profit-making cost centres. We were just in production with Aston Martin, supplying them with about six or seven sets a week, all set for Jaguar and for Rover as well. And um, But of course, we weren't making a profit on paper at that particular point. So they sold the marketing rights to um, Lucas, who promptly said, Thank you very much. That's our competition yes. out of the way. There's the door over there. And unfortunately, that was the end of it. But uh, I, I think that the, the system that you started off, Jerry, was, was superior to anything else that was around at the time. It was. It was. So it was a, another lost cause, I'm afraid. But, but, uh, but there we go. Well, we must bring things back to uh, Lightweight Project just for a moment because I want to bring Roger in at this point. And we keep hearing this name, Bob Blake, Roger. Um, and uh, Peter tells me, I've got to ask you about Bob Blake and how it was like working with him and some of the work that you were doing on the lightweights at the time. So who was Bob, first of all? So Bob was, a, as you said, an American guy who came over, I believe, just after, after the war, having met his wife when he was in you know, military service. And he worked for Briggs Cunningham before that. And um, he was given a job, I believe it was Haynes gave him a job in our department. I think that's what happened. He met him at one of the race meetings. And um, 
that's when he proved his brilliance with metal, which was ideal in those days. Because working for Sir William, there was no sort of clay modellings and CAD and scanning and that sort of thing. It was all hands-on. And he was extremely adaptable. Which he would have had to have been creating a vehicle like Ford WPD that we see yeah, that's out right. there today. And he got on well, pretty well, with Malcolm Sayers, who also had a lot of input, obviously. So, yeah, I, I worked with him most of the time. And he was, I found him, a very, very competent guy. Well, you must have worked with him for the thick end of 20 years, all told. I can't remember when 1962, when you came into the competition shop. Yeah, yes. And, and you were still associated with Bob when, when he retired in the beginning of the end. Yeah, well, we had a, a couple of moves in there, yes. He moved into Red Gardner's department, you know, effectively, that's what he was. And things were in the doldrums because uh, when Leyland took over, it really went downhill, in my opinion. And there was uh, not a lot of interesting work, but um, he kept going. So would you, you saw him as a, the sort of creative force behind some of the things that you were required to oh, do? Oh, yeah, then? definitely, yes. Because yeah. he, he could interpret, basically, so William, not nice, couldn't put his ideas over. He didn't draw or sketch. He just described what he wanted and Bob could interpret him, you know. Bob could make anything. He yeah, could. Yes. Good, yeah. Particularly in aluminium. Oh, yeah. Well, there was Bob's Ferrari as well. Oh, um, Daytona, yes. Well, no, before the Daytona, there was a 330 GT. Oh, that's right. It had yes, been yes. acquired from Coombs, uh, but it had, been, it had a front end, a big front end shunt. Yes. And um, I think it was acquired to study the engine, Jerry. And it stood out the back of the test shell, test, uh, test beds for ages. Bob used to, um, every, every now and then at lunchtime, he'd come back with a bit of this. Ferrari twisted metal and he'd knock it on, sorting it all out. And he eventually managed to buy the car yes, yes, yes. and he took it home. He got a good workshop himself. And when it emerged, it was absolutely immaculate. But there was a snag with the engine because it had been, the bits had been distributed around different places. Right, yes. And it was George Buck that assembled it for him. They gathered up all the bits and they were finding all the bits. George put it together in his garage in Kenilworth and... Um, um, <laughs> Uh, so Bob got his Ferrari probably for about the price of a new Mini at the time. <laughs> um, but he then did the same with the Ferrari Daytona, didn't he, Roger? That was late, long after I'd gone. Because that 365 was damaged, wasn't it? Yeah. Because uh, I remember the chassis was two round tubes, yeah. like drain pipes, which became elongated, uh, oval, in the engine bay. And he had to find some tubing to weld onto it, you know, things like that. He said it was the fastest motor lorry on the road. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it was built, basically. <laughs> but it was, it was interesting. It was, I mean, because you were with Bob down at the bottom end of our shop, and Sir William would come in and he'd march straight down. And um, there'd be a lot of arm waving and out to, to, the, to the outside observer that thinks that perhaps Bob was being ticked off by Sir William with all his arm waving, etc. But that wasn't. He was sort of given the, the idea of what he wanted, and it was more or less, I'll be back in two days' time. Yes. Meantime, Bob was producing the, uh, what he wanted in, 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 sheet, in sheet metal. You did tell me a very funny story that you ought to tell again for the camera because um, there was a moment, I think you said it was a, a Mark 10, was it? The base car that was being used, and it was being covered in sheeting and... And in particular, matte paint. Oh, yeah, it was and the... a particular incident with Sir William got some on him. Tell us the story. Well, it was Bill Cassidy that told us, actually. Bill was the uh, experimental department foreman. And the, um, the Mark 10, the, the first prototypes, uh, it was bulbous enough, but they made it more bulbous. They were camouflaged to go to Spain. Yeah, mm. but they, they got more felt stuck on the outside of them. The things were enormous. And it was covered, this felt was covered with polythene sheeting stretched over and stuck on and then the whole lot was sprayed matte black and they'd altered the roof line by the same means and Bill Cassidy says oh he says yes he Bill took great delight in telling us this Sir William always wore an immaculate double-breasted blue suit apparently Sir William had been in and he was holding forth court around this prototype you see and he see Bill said he folded his arm and he leant back against the car well the paint had never dried on the polythene sheeting <laughs> a chemical reaction or something so he leans forward and he's got two big black stripes across his <laughs> And Bill said he made it worse by putting his arm on the roof and resting his head on it. Um, I think somebody said, why didn't you tell him, Bill? He said, you think I'm daft? <laughs> <laughs> 
which gives a real insight into the sort of relationship between Sir William Lyons and his workforce that no one dared tell him he had paint on his jacket. There, there was another <laughs> incident, and you remember this, Roger, because Bob had... Um, he had some back trouble and he had to have two um, vertebrae fused together. He was off work for a few six weeks or so. But he'd bought a, a Mark I Jaguar saloon. He was Bill Haynes's his TBC 420. TBC 420, yeah. Yeah, it, which had got a 3.8 engine and aluminium doors. And he'd bought this. It was, uh, it was a Sherwood green car. And um, just before he went out, there was a Bill Thornton, who was the chief body engineer. He arrived in our shop one day with Sir William with a pile of plasticine and the front, the front end book of a Mark II. He only went back as far as the print was. And Bill Thornton spent with a with literally a knife and a spoon uh, remodelling the, the the front profile to provide hoods over the over the heads headlights. And Bob used to walk up and pass this. You see, and he'd look at it. He never said a word. Or, uh, anyway. Fast forward, he goes off and he's off for six weeks, convalescing or something. When Bob came back, he comes to work in his car and it's now got beautifully formed hooded headlights, you see. <laughs> and not only that, it looked an awful lot better than what Sir William had just and the Thornton had done for the, uh, the S-Type. So it had, wasn't long because before it was spotted by Sir William and Bob was called <laughs> to stand on the square on the spot. Here to explain himself, and he said, "Well, he says, I've got some spare timer." He said, "Well, um, I'm telling you to put it back to standard." Anyway, Bob apparently refused, and he, Bob treated everybody the same. It didn't matter who they were, whether it was the guy who swept the floor or Sir William. He was not exactly the same. No, no, he says, "My car." He says, "No, I've done that work." You know, I'm not. Telling you. Well, Sir William had got a choice. He either sacked him, in which case he would shoot himself in the foot, because one of his key body men would disappear. Um, or they had to achieve a compromise. Anyway, Bob told us the compromise was that whenever he brought it to work, he had to park it nose in against the wall so nobody could see it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's the type of relationship that yeah. there was. And the, the 2 plus 2 E type, what became the 2 plus 2 E type, Bob did that himself in, um, together with you and, and Jeff Joyce. Remember, he cut nine inches out the middle and stretched it out, played with a roof panel and all sorts. And making... Uh, Two plus two rear seats thing. There was that bronze car. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like a yes. cross between the saloon and the. What was it called? Just had a code number. Um, I can't remember what the XJ number was for it, but uh, off the hand. But um, but there were only three three prototypes before it went into production. And Bob did all the um, to rejig the interior structure because there was a big cross member behind the seats in the um, in the E type. So he had to reduce that, and he reconfigured and uh, rejigged the um, the structural elements um, such that it was okay. But then there was a bit of a snag. The, if you come down from the the door, there's a the door window. There's like a, a vertical section. Then the door comes out in profile. Well, to get the extra height, this vertical section just beneath the the, the, the side window was about well, twice the depth. And Sir William didn't like it. It looked unbalanced. So Bob set to, and um, with a bit of mahogany, he made a, um, a trim strip covered in silver paper to make, represent chrome and put it on there. And uh, apparently Sir William says, that's it then, Blake. <laughs> Job done. Well, describing Bob Blake there is another example of how an individual bit of talent, an individual personality made such a difference to Jaguar because... It's great having all of these ideas that Sir William Lyons had, but you need that person to translate them into something physical and real that is, is, is buildable, haven't you? And that's all part of that chain that made it such a success at the time. Anticipating what he might want as well. <laughs> sure. And he was so quick as well, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's, he just had an instinct for it, and he, and he understood what the company wanted. I think as everybody did, you know. He knew what was right. Yeah. Decisions that Mr. Haynes made at times on the shop floor. Yeah, no doubt about it. And he said, we'll do that then. Told Claude, Claude, we'll do that. Yes, yes. That was it. Yeah. And in a way, there's a tremendous amount of freedom there for people on the shop floor to make those decisions as they go and, and develop things without having to report back to a board all the time and... That's quite unique in today's world, isn't it? Generally, generally, if you were doing the project, you knew what was wanted. You could just get on with it. 
you, if anyone wants to make changes, they would do. But you usually got it so that, um, you, as I say, you anticipated what people wanted. He didn't make many mistakes. No, he didn't. Because they would have come out. So I remember Harry Hawkins. Remember Harry? Harry Hawkins was a detail fitter in the uh, main experimental shop. He was a big, gruff bear of a man, was Harry. He didn't take any prisoners whatsoever. And I um, made to death. Yeah. <laughs> really? Harry said, he was uh, sounding off one day. He says, oh, he says, one of those draftsmen come over. He says, he says, trying to explain his drawing to me. He says, uh, he says, oh, he says, he says, I don't bother with any of that. He says, um, if you can draw it, I can make it. He says, and even if you can't draw it, I'll still make it. <laughs> and he was probably right. Yes, yes, right. yes. That's the, that's that's the level of skills that were around. Yeah, incredible craftsmanship, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yes. But there was so much enthusiasm with the engineering department in general, wasn't there? Was. In the, that was. Yes. No, it was. Um, what can we do to improve this? I'll do that. It was, uh, it, I mean, Bill Haynes built up a, a super team, really, didn't he? He did, and he was always interested in, in taking on anyone with a sort of slightly different angle on things. Mm. Um, I mean, he, he took on Ted Sokolovsky, who yes. worked, of course, later on on the XJ-13, didn't yes, he? Yes, he did. Yeah. So I, I worked with Ted, it, it was a he had a, well, an interesting war history in that he'd been enrolled in the Polish army straight out of university, the beginning of the war, in their only motorised division, promptly overrun by the Russians. So he spent about 18 months, two years in a Russian prisoner war camp. And then, this was before the Germans invaded Russia, the Germans and the Poles and the Russians were exchanging prisoners. So Ted moved into Germany because he didn't particularly get on with the Russians, because he was fresh out of university, started evening classes in engineering. I mean, the prison camp he was at was sort of miles away from the, the, the front and manned by First World War German officers who were very correct and very proper. He, he ended up by enrolling some of the German guards in his classes. As the Russians came into Eastern Germany, I could have been Poland, I don't know which, but as, as he advanced westward, the, the friendly guards let him be known that they would forget to lock the doors that night. And he walked out, walked about eight or ten miles, found a bicycle and just kept cycling west until he met, I don't know if he met the British Army or the, the Americans, but he ended up, he, he still had some of the technical magazines with the um, prison Camp stamp on them that he showed me. Incredible. And he, he, I mean, the country was very generous to the Poles who, who'd fought when we went to war on their behalf to begin with. We gave them education if they wanted. So he enrolled with, um, I think, evening classes in London and got a job. And then, because his main interest was the automobile industry, he wrote round to various manufacturers, Jaguar included, and Sir William took him on, put him with me, really, in that corner of the drawing office. And then he still had his flat in London and used to go down weekends back home to his flat in the Messerschmitt bubble car that he had. Do you remember them? Yeah. Tand tandem seated. Yeah, with yeah. no reverse gear, of course. That's right, yeah. that's right. <laughs> you just pick him up and wheel him out, yes. Amazing. Do you think it made a difference that a lot of the workforce had been brought up through the war years and had had to do national service? Do you think that gave people a different view on work at that time? Um, well, there weren't many ex-national service people. Um, I think most of them, people in the design office, were above national service age anyway um, that I worked with. I mean, there were it, it, the drawing office was not large then, and it, it was both the body office and the, the sort of general engineering office. And we had big, big wall boards for the, the body people there. I think it's very difficult in this day and age to try to understand and comprehend 
people as they were then. It was a whole different ballpark, you know. We'd just come out of a war. We had a lot of people who were trained by the Army and the Air Force and the Navy. Good engineers. The obvious place for them to go was the motor industry. So that, I think that's one of the reasons why there were so many good engineers about at the time. Because they'd been trained to be good engineers during the war. And it became obvious later on, and I'm talking production now at Jaguar, when the mines closed during the big upheaval, the government insisted, the Labour government in power, they insisted that all manufacturers would employ as many miners as possible. We had a whole influx of miners coming to Browns Lane who hadn't got a clue what they were doing. You wouldn't expect them to. Uh, they'd been producing coal, and by and large, they were now being asked to build motor cars, which was a bit extreme, to say the least. Back to Lightweight Programme, and there are a few little stories within it, perhaps myths that have come through the media over the years, and perhaps we can clear some of them up. The first one being that there were lots of spare parts uh, for Jaguar light, uh, E-Type Lightweights because um, some deal was done with Abbey Panels where they were commissioned for a hundred of each panel and they actually produced a thousand. True or false? False. Totally false. There were, there were 20 light uh, aluminium panel sets pressed. Only 20. And uh, that's fully documented. Abbey Panels built quite a number of aluminium bonnets because originally the E-Type was going to have an aluminium bonnet. Then it was decided it was too expensive and they went to steel. However, we never had a problem in procuring spare aluminium bonnets if we had one that was bent because Abby had this uh, nice little stock and we just used to whistle them up. But the, re I'm sorry, but the rest of what you just said is just complete myth. We, we, Jaguar never spent money where they didn't have to. And in fact, although there were 18, 20 panel sets, there were only 18 monocoques or basic monocoques assembled. 16 of those were in fact used on the lightweight program. I know we only built uh, 12 cars, but there were one or two that would, uh, were uh, badly crashed and required new monocoques. Um, so 16 of those were uh, were rebuilt, were um, were used up. The remaining two went into the, um, the what I call the classic car industry and they, they swanned around for a while. Um, one of which was built up by um, what we call Lynx Engineering down in the south. And it was dubbed the 13th lightweight, which was, and it still exists. So it had a, the, 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 the full house aluminium monocoque, um, but with a lot of mechanicals. And a lot of the mechanicals were procured from production. A lot of the suspension componentry was. And then the, uh, the last one was rebuilt by Lynx to rebuild what was called the, uh, the Linda car, which was um, eventually the 1964 car we, we ran as a, a work-supported car, the one that failed at Le Mans. It was um, written off at Montleary in the end of 64. Unfortunately, Peter Lindner, who was driving it, was killed simply because he refused to wear seat belts. The, the cockpit was intact after this huge accident, uh, but he'd been thrown out. And it was, uh, he was thrown out and he was killed. But anyway, Lynx used this last remaining spare monocoque to rebuild the... Um, the car. And this is over a whole period of years. Then, but the old crunched up, rolled in a ball monocoque was still retained and it was displayed in a museum in Germany called the Rosser Collection of the, the rebuilt car and the crunched up monocoque. And a guy called Peter Newmark, who runs classic motor cars over in um, Shropshire, uh, he acquired the lot and he set out on a mammoth project to have the old wrecked monocoque taken apart, panel by panel, everything straightened out and sorted out and rebuilt. And I helped them a bit with it over uh, a lot of the features that were, were pertinent to that car. And I can assure you that what resulted is the real thing. The spare monocoque he was left with, this was what Lynx had used, he built into a... Uh, Another replica lightweight, so there's the 14th lightweight, uh, but the, the 13th and 14th weren't, um, weren't, weren't built by Jaguar. But um, certainly the, the Peter Lindner car, um, which had Malcolm Sayers low drag bodywork on it, um, is all original. 
apart from a box about twice the size of a shoe box, where all the aluminium that they weren't able to salvage and reuse in the rebuild of the monocoque was tossed. And you got this, it was about twice the size of a shoe box. And it was mainly down to flanges where spot welds had been drilled out and it had to um, re-weld new flanges on. Peter Newmark's disposed of that car now. I think it's a, guy, a Spanish guy called Monteverdi has it now, but um, it's, um, it, it, it's, it, it is totally unique. Amazing. Of course, Peter yeah. Lindner was a um, Jaguar German, Jaguar importer, wasn't he? That yes, uh, famously yes. raced alongside yes. Peter Nock. Um, and uh, yeah, tragically killed him one as you... As yes, you he was, yeah. Peter Nocker said that, uh, and he's been said, and you, you look at photographs, and Linda had a very in- unusual driving style. Nocker said, oh, he said, he'd be perched on the edge of the seat and he'd throw himself into a bend and you saw, you can see pictures, one or two in the book, where he's over here, he's going around a sort of a right-hand bend and he's, he's over here, here's the, the steering wheel is here. And this was his driving style. He, he was a bit like an animal, but he could get around the Nürburgring very quickly. And um, unfortunately, that was his undoing because he, he ref- he's had a five-point harness in the car. Uh, Knocker wore it, but Linda refused to wear it. And um, as an end result, it cost him his life, which was a tragedy really for Jaguar because he was well-respected by Sir William because he'd built the German market up from a very small beer to big time. We started the conversation talking about the drive to create an E-Type that was uh, more competitive against Ferrari. And of course, that was pretty much what was achieved at the end of it. But of course, in order to go racing with a car, you have to do something called homologation. And this is basically where um, the authorities that control motorsport allow you to run a car because it's representative of something that you have in production. And the question I've got is, how on earth did Jaguar manage to get an alloy-bodied car through homologation when the, when the production cars were steel? Well, it was the other way around, actually, because um, <laughs> that's the prediction that was presented. Because the all-aluminium car was homologated as the standard car. And the steel-bodied car, we thought that was a no-cost option for, for anyone who wanted to buy it. <laughs> Strangely enough, most, most customers went for the, the no-cost option of Funny the steel enough, body yeah, and all yeah. the production bits yeah, in it. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> but that's the way it was done. And that was typical of the way Ferrari and Porsche did oh, it. Yes. It was all sort of smoke and mirrors job to sort of, yeah, yes, service, of course we've complied with it. Yes, of course we have. Yes, that's it. Um, but it was just like our second iteration of, of that car with a Cengage steel body. Phil Weaver said to us when we had to rebuild the, when the first one was wrecked, he says, oh, you will use one of these. He says, nobody will know anyway. It'll be a lot lighter. <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone ever describes an E-type um, that was built as standard as an aluminium-bodied monocoque, they're actually correct <laughs> in terms of homologation yeah, papers. Yeah, they, are. they are correct. They are, they are correct. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Yes, aluminium block and all the other... Yes. They were, they were standard. All the, uh, the other stuff was no-cost options. Yeah. Um, and, of course, so the cars were all given um, production numbers, weren't they, with an S suffix, is that correct? No, that's right, except for that one. But you'll notice now, if you look at it now, it's got an S stamped on it because somewhere down the line, originally, um, and it was all to do with taxation, right. um, you built a car, the Jaguar built a car and road registered it. You had to pay purchase tax on it. Uh, the first uh, iteration of 4WPD was sold to Coombs uh, as a production car, so it had a production, uh, an early, regi- uh, early chassis number. When we rebuilt it into its thin-gauge steel form, of course, we used the same chassis number. Well, we just rebuilt the car. When we rebuilt it again into the all-alloy car, then we used the same chassis number. Otherwise, you'd have had to, if you'd changed the chassis number of those, in, in two of those rebuilds, you'd have been paying purchase tax on each one. Yeah, you built two cars. Yeah. So, um, but then the remaining 11 were given a block of numbers out of the production register, but with an S in front of it. And also, on the engine number, remember, Jerry, there was the engine number and a dash for yes. the compression ratio, yes. dash nine, uh, the dash nine S's. A lot of people oh, think yes. it was, there wasn't a five, it should have been 9.5. It wasn't. It was 
part and parcel of the um, what the salespeople put in their ledger, yes. that the engines had an S after them as well. Now, somewhere down the line, because bear in mind, we finished with the car in the competition department in 1964 with this one. So it's a long time. A lot of people have had the fingers in the pie. Somewhere down the line, it's acquired an S in front of his chassis number. And it's totally untrue. Uh. But it was rebuilt on a new monocoque, one of the spare monocoques in the mm. service department in the mid-60s. Mm. And the picture frame, the front cross member, was where the number was stamped on. Oh, they all have an S in front of it, mate. Oh, do they? Yeah, S. That's it. <laughs> Amazing. But um, that's why the, that car is unique in itself. But uh, yes. some, somebody needs to file the S out of the chassis uh, <laughs> number. Shades of Betz KD505. Oh, yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> what number do you like on it? But those commission plates, Brian, they were dead easy for pop rivets and you put another one yes. on with different numbers on. Yes, don't tell any of the DVLA any of that. We don't, we don't want them. <laughs> oh, no, 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 nothing like that. No, no, no. Of course, you, you know, when you rebuilt that car um, and it went back out into competition, it was one Graham Hill that debuted it, wasn't it? Yeah, he, he raced it four times in 1963 and he won every time against uh, GTO opposition. Graham, he, was, he, was, he did a lot of our testing for us and he was a great character. But you could never have a car stiff enough for him. Oh, yeah. Um, wind, we, the, wind the shocks up. That's it. Norton, um, Norman would probably set the car up a bit. Uh, well, okay, off to Silverstone for Hill. And he says, um, goes out, does two or three. What are the tyre pressures? 45, put them up to 60. <laughs> and it did not matter how we stiffened the car with stronger torsion bars, uprated rear springs, etc. We could never get it stiff enough for him. He always wanted it stiffer still. But nobody else could really drive the car to the limits that he could get out of it. Yeah. But except for one man, Jackie Stewart. It occurred that Lofty got Jackie Stewart to try the car in the middle of 1964 because the car had been run at Silverstone and Coombs had uh, managed to get Dan Gurney to drive the car and he didn't like it. And he openly said he was going to just tootle around and retire after a couple of laps. Well, there was a bit of a conflagration and um, he ended up driving the whole race and he finished about ninth or something. He just tootled around and Lofty got fed up because we got a, spent a lot of money on that car. Coombs wasn't paying the bill and um, he wanted Jackie Stewart to try it. Test session at Silverstone. Coombs didn't want it. He says, he'll wreck my car. Well, was it his? Anyway, Stuart arrives, and he openly said in later, in later years, I've heard him, heard him say it, that it was only when he, uh, he, he was, thought this was a step into the big time, Coombs was going to let him try his car. He said it was only when he turned up at Silverstone, he realised that it was a works car attended to by works personnel. He did very few laps, only about 15 laps. Uh, he went out, did a few laps. Coombs was jumping up and down thinking he was going to wreck the car. I think Lofty had put him on one side. <laughs> so, shut up. He came in and he wanted the brakes re-bled, blood brakes, where he went again. And within about six laps, he got it round Silverstone half a second quicker than Hill had managed. And it was un also half a second quicker under the, uh, the existing GT lap record. And you thought... At the time, here's somebody who's in for the big time. Do you think the lightweight E-Type started Jackie Stewart's career in many ways? Well, no, not really. He raced Formula 3 um, cars, I know, one-litre um, cars for Ken Tyrrell, and he was pretty good at that, but it was the first big car he'd, he'd driven. He subsequently, we, we went to a race at uh, Crystal Palace, let him have a proper race in it, which, which he won easily, and then... Um, he raced it two more times at Brown's Hatch with, with some success. But then we're toward the end of 64 and the year of the front engine GT car was over and the Cobras had turned up and they were now fitted with seven litre engines, some of them, and it was the yeah. you know, brute force and ignorance. Yeah. There's, um, you can't compete with something that's almost twice the size. Sure. And Ferrari had gone to the 250 um uh, what was it, the 250 LM? The, LM, yeah. Yeah, the LM, a mid-engined um, GT car. And, um, no, 
it was the end of the era, really. Sure. So we um, we took all the special bits off, 1532 cams, and um, one or two other bits and pieces, and the car was given back to Coombs. And I think the only thing that was original on it was the steering wheel. <laughs> uh, and he sold it on to Red Rose Motors. And um, he sold it um, to a guy called Charlie Bridges. And uh, just a little bit of history here. Charlie Bridges uh, knew a guy called Gordon Brown, who was um, an ex-Marine engineer. He was into racing in XK120. And Gordon had, had let this young lad called Brian Redman, a baker from up in Lancashire somewhere, mm -hmm. have a go in his 120 in a sprint. And he promptly did fastest time a day. And Gordon, I know Gordon's son very well, he's a good friend of mine. Gordon said to, um, apparently said to Redman, he says, oh, he says, uh, I'll get you a drive in a lightweight E-Type. And Redman thought, oh, yeah. Come over to Open Park Thursday, right? Introduced him to Bridges. Bridges um, had bought this car so he could beat up all the locals at the local place. Like, uh, Bridges let him have a go in it and he, he says, what are you doing on Saturday? Not a lot. He says, you're racing this instead of me. Wow. And that launched Brian Redman's career. Well, right. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. In fact, I saw Brian Redman at an interview session at the NEC uh, about four or five years ago, and it was a Q&A session afterwards, so I thought I'll ask him. I stuck my hand up. I said, does the name Gordon Brown mean anything to you? And his eyes lit up. He says, yes, he says. And he reiterated the whole story of how that launched his career. Yep. Mm. Yes. And it took him to the very top of motor racing, yes. and that was the car that really set him on the on the road. Fantastic. Well, of course, his biggest success, really, the E-Type lightweight, would have been Sebring 1963, 12 hours, where it won the class at Sebring. Um, yeah, yeah. Ed Leslie and Frank Morrill. Yes, you say that it was its, its golden moment? It was its first race, first, the lightweight's first race, actually, mm -hmm. um, because our works development car didn't race. Uh, its first race was at Snetterton in uh, a fortnight after Sebring. It could have done better. The Cunningham, there was two cars. There was the Cavalli entered car that you just mentioned, and there was the Cunningham car. But the Cunningham car was running about uh, fourth or fifth at the time, and then they split, split a brake pipe, and they had to um, to the rear brakes. They had to hammer the uh, the pipe flat and carry on the rest of the race just with front brakes only. So the result was that um, the the Leslie Morrill car got ahead of them, but. Um, yeah, that was its uh, its first its first outing. That moment at Sebring, that first race, of course, obviously got back. The word got back to Ferrari, and they dashed off and quickly gave the 250 GTO more power, of course, as well, which was um, a sign that they understood that they needed to respect the lightweight E-Type. And of course, it was much better than those um, Ferraris on the twisty circuits of the UK, um, where it really was at home, well, wasn't it? It was. It was, and it wasn't. But the Ferrari, the drivers, everyone, every one of the drivers, Hill and Salvadori in particular, loved the GTO. They said it handles like a dream. And you look at photographs, and there's plenty in the book, of the two cars together, and you see the E-Type, you, you can see it's uneasy on its feet, if you like, compared with the GTO that's either behind it or in front of it. And although it was a live axle car, I think a really well-engineered, uh, live rear axle, there's not a lot wrong with it. And the GTO just, it wasn't an exceptional car, it did everything very well. No, and it's, uh, it really was the, the thing to beat. And the fact that we were actually able to get on top of it for a while was a huge achievement. Yeah. Was there anything that you learnt from um, the crash at Snetterton where the, the car was really badly damaged? Was it Dick Prothero was driving it then? Is that correct? Ah, oh, that wasn't. No, that wasn't. Was a, different... No, that was Prothero's own car. Right. Okay. Yeah. He, that was a bad crash, wasn't it? That he, damaged he, the car. Prothero built an E-type up from from bits, and he was quite he was quite competitive. It wasn't. Uh, no, he was a fixed head coupe, standard shape, right. and he had a, a nasty accident in it at Snetterton. He didn't hurt himself too much, but um, it um, it didn't do much for the car. But um, you know, the only thing I say about Prothero is that he had the what we call the low drag coupe, the the GT, uh, the first iteration of lightweight, the, the prototype GT coupe, and um, he had problems. He bought it in 1963, and he he got some problems 
and he'd phoned up Bill Wilkinson. He was at Goodwood, practice for the TT. Misfire, couldn't do anything with it. So he drove it up together with his wife. And Jim had, um, Wilkie had asked um, Jim to hang back yes. a bit. And um, so they brought it around the back of the test cells and Jim sort of, pretty shrewd idea what the problem might be, felt all the injector pipes. Oh, this is the one, yeah. Took the injector out, put it on his little blow, he blew it out with compressed air and everything else, cleaned the injector, put it back in, off you go. He said Prothero didn't really believe that he'd fixed it. He says, come on, we'll try it, get in. So Jim says, off we went down the A45 to Stonebridge. He said it was a kicking out time for most of the industry. He says, we shot down this road at some speed. He says, I didn't know whether to open my eyes or close them or what have you. Round Stonebridge Island and back up the other way. He said, oh, he says, yeah. he says I'll remember that as long as I live. Then somebody told him Prother Road only got one eye, <laughs> which he had. In, in an accident, he was in the RAF and there was an accident, he lost an eye. <laughs> Jim so didn't know that until yes, I got yes. out. But even, you know, we were talking about this even a couple of weeks before we lost him. Yes. Um, and he says, oh, he says, it printed on my ma ma memory forever, that ride. I'll bet, I'll bet. <laughs> yes. I, I had a ride around Myra with Norman Jewis in one of the light alloys. Yeah. Which was quite phenomenal because the suction was pulling the side windows out because <laughs> of the flexible. Yeah, yeah. The noise. And he seemed quite unconcerned, Norman did. I don't think speed bothered him in the least. So it, it's always intrigued me why um, the car was based on a effectively a convertible with a with a hard top type shape rather than the the coupe. Was there a particular reason for that? Lighter, yeah, it's lighter. Yeah, with the alloy, I think it was just weight, wasn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah, the alloy yeah. hard top was quite light. Yeah, not the glass fiber one, obviously. Mm, sure. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, and, and of course. With it being standard shaped, he, he was good from a PR point of view because, I mean, uh, of course, these are Jaguar, nothing to do with these cars, had they at all? I mean, uh, if they won, oh, yes, look what the customers have done. Mm. If they lost, then, well, it was only a customer car, wasn't it? Yeah, sure. Mm. Yeah. It's fantastic to see 4WPD out there today, and it's been great to film with it today and to bring all of you guys back together. I don't know what the value of an original E-Type lightweight is. I'm not sure it really matters to this conversation, but what we know is they're worth an awful lot of money, millions. Did you guys ever imagine when you were working on these cars back in the day, they would have become such iconic and sought after collectibles? Of course not. No, no. Not the no. even remotest not the remotest. thought. And if Sir William had had an inkling, <laughs> nobody right. would have right. had them. That's right. I mean, that car out there today is probably worth thick end of 12 to 15 million pounds on the open market. Mm. I mean, it's ridiculous. Mm. And you could buy the company three or four times over you for that could. money. Yes, yes. Um, well, I mean, he always looked after the pennies. If I can leave one anecdote about Sir William, when I was, my early days working on the, the assembly line during my tour of the plant, it stopped one afternoon for about 10 minutes and then restarted. And the reason it filtered its way up, mouth to mouth, all up the line, apparently the very first station on the, on the assembly line was where they put the springs on the axles and so on. And there was a guy there putting grease nipples in, you know, filling little things. And you know, with the track sort of moving, you couldn't waste time. If, if, if one dropped, he got another man out to the bin. So his, the floor around him was covered with <laughs> grease nipples he dropped. Sir William saw this and he told him to pull the cord and stop the track. And he said, now count those up, put them in a bucket, and tomorrow morning go up and see Harry Tether, who purchase director, and get him to tell you how much those cost. Now put those you've picked up back in the bin and read them and start the track again. No, no word of criticism. No, no admonishment at all, but, but a wonderful lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Going round the table, what's your, your best memories from being involved with Jaguar? Start, starting at this end over here. Jerry, as you look back over your long career, and it, 
doesn't have to be from a particular uh, era of Jaguar, but what's the, the memory you have? I, I, the memory is, is it a small group of, of pals, really. It, 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 was, it was a pleasure to go to work and meet the people who worked with. And, and, you know, a, a lovely atmosphere. Brian? I've never been asked that question before. I started, um, I think, the year after you, 1949, at Powell's Hill. I wanted to get a trade, so I volunteered and went in the RAF for four years. And they said to me at Jaguar, your job will be here when you come back. And nothing surprised me more to find it was. And that, to me, typified the fact you could be part of the company and recognised as part of the company. And I suppose that's my most outstanding thought. Made you feel like you belonged to a kind of family. Absolutely, yeah. Peter? My memories are pretty much as Jerry's, actually. It was the camaraderie and, and, and the general atmosphere. It, it was, and as you say, Jerry, it was just like a, fam a family, and it was a pleasure to go to work. You woke up in the morning and you think, oh, well, yeah, none of this, oh, work again, what am I doing? And the enthusiasm and work the interest. Or? Well, I suppose it did. If it was Fred Gardner, you'd say differently, wouldn't you? Yeah, but... but Outside of the Fred Gardner environment, it was it was it was great. I and mean, I moved on from Jaguar, and okay, then I, the rest of my career is elsewhere. But I always think that the Jaguar days were the best from that point of view and the most enjoyable. Frank, your your best memory that you hang on to from your days at Jaguar? Going there, going there. Starting, there was an advertisement in the Company in Telegraph. This was a beginning. Two weeks in, 1948, February 48, and I wrote for the apprenticeship, and uh, I got it. I never regretted one minute about that going there because everybody, even in those days, there was a big family atmosphere. Everybody greeted you. It was a really peculiar place to go to work because it was the old your buildings, and they got wooden floors, and some of them they got stores underneath, and some of them smelt a bit. We never knew whether the loose were piped properly or <laughs> or full of fuel. By the sounds it of it, was a bit dodgy. Um, but anyway, everybody there was doing the same. Everybody was very easy going to get on with, and then when I came. Well, I had to go in the army, and when I came back, I met Mr. Emerson again in uh, in Leamington, and he said, what are you doing? I said, I've come out of the army now. And he said, well, if you want a job, come in on Monday morning and see me. So I went in to see him, naturally, because I'd got on well with it. He was an easy man to get on with, actually. I went in to see him, and he said, oh, right, you want the job then? So I said, yes. And he said, go up and see Mr. So-and-so in the Labour office. So I went up there and said to this chap, Mr. Emerson's taking me on. Oh, good. Good. That was it. And I had the pleasure of... Uh, Emerson said to me, uh, Mr. Emerson, go down and tell Joe Barker that I've started you now. As of now, you're part of the system. So I went down and I told Buck. <laughs> and he said, I promised somebody else that job. <laughs> <laughs> and it was that Air Vice Marshal, it was your baker. The Air Vice Marshal's son, son, wasn't he? And he apparently had been told he'd be moving in there. <laughs> and finally, Roger from you. Well, I, I just finished a spell in the drawing office, and I remember being sent for why Joe Barker was going to move me somewhere else. And he, I had never heard of the competition department, and I had to show my ignorance on this. I didn't really sit, because it was strictly no admittance. And he said, do you fancy spelling competitions? And it could have been the Times crossword for all I knew. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he sent me down to see Phil Weaver, and I finished my apprenticeship there. And Phil could call me up and ask me if I'd like to continue. With a, you know, with a job there. So that was a great moment because it was, a, goodness knows where it had been elsewhere. <laughs> Probably finished up in the drawing office. It was a bit dull at that time, I thought. 
and um, and everybody was so incredibly kind. I know it sounds a bit odd talking about adults, but they were generous and helpful. Very very little malice, and you can't say that about every company. We we have uh, what was started off as an ex apprentices do in the pub at Paddington uh, on the airfield. And now I've been told that uh, they're really old and don't mind, but a lot of the people who weren't apprentices now want to come and join us. But that's the attitude that Buddha spoke about earlier. And it's going to be expanded considering we had about 20, 25 at the maximum. We get 25 there at the moment. But uh, it's going to expand. Quite interesting. It's interesting to see that the family lives on, and it, it was interesting at the beginning of this that they to want hear to about. do it from the other side of it. Because I know when people have told me they were a Jaggy apprentice, and I've looked at him and I thought, well, I don't know him, so he wasn't. <laughs> and I've argued the point. <laughs> Until he Do you check them against the register when they come in, Frank, is that...? No, just look at them. Just look at them and you know. <laughs> he doesn't look the sword. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked about the pride that you all had to wear the white overalls, be part of the competition department at Jaguar, and we finished by amplifying that pride and talking about the camaraderie and the family that you were all a part of, and... I feel like I've been just let in for a brief moment into that family. So thank you all very much for that and for sharing your amazing stories and memories. So thank you all very much. Pleasure. You're welcome. Very welcome. You're welcome. The stories you've heard have all come about because of a new book that you can read and get hold of and learn all about the fantastic program that created the Jaguar E-Type Lightweights. And Peter Wilson is the author of the book. This comes on the back of a book that you wrote about the XJ13. And I know Paul Skillet, who's published the book for you, um, was unsure uh, what to expect when he asked you to write about the lightweights, but has ended up with more detail than he could ever have imagined. And you've really pulled together the full story. So it must have been an enjoyable journey for you to pull together all the details of the programme. Well, well, it was, but there, there were several motivational points, really. Number one was there's so many fairy stories being written over the years about what went on and who worked there and who didn't work there and et cetera, et cetera. An awful lot of them never ever crossed the Browns Lane threshold, let alone knew where the competition department was. But the main motivational point really was to bring out the truth of what we actually did in, in as much detail as we possibly could and involve the others to contribute to it. So it wasn't just me that wrote it, but uh, contributions from everyone sitting here uh, and others, also to try and bring into the book the, the people involved because very few people even know of their existence today. There are plenty of um, people who um, would like to think they were, but they weren't involved. If it succeeds in, 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 in getting the detailed history down and introducing the people who actually worked there and built the cars, then I'd be well satisfied. Mm. Well, it's the detail that strikes you when you open the pages of the book, the photographs, the drawings, the technical specifications that you've also included in there. And it's the sort of thing you can only really convey and understand if you were there doing it. And that's what you've brought to it, isn't it? Well, that's true. But I must mention as well that without access to the uh, Jaguar Heritage Archive, it would have been an impossible task. Because whilst there is a mountain of stuff here, I had a pretty shrewd inkling as to what records were kept in, in period, so I knew what to look for. But an awful lot of it was needle in a haystack to try and uh, find and think, ah, here it is, yes. But without access to um, the JDHC archives, it wouldn't have been possible at all. So I was very grateful for the, uh, the access that I was allowed to, uh, which enabled me to write the book. It didn't happen in five minutes. It took about eight years. <laughs> I can see that. and it's, but, uh, but not full time, I might add. It's, it, it's well worth reading and learning about those cars. And what do you think is the reason why people should learn about that programme and those people? What's the key reason you'd like people to read the book? Well, really to have an understanding of 
how things were, how we did things, and how things happened. As I've said, there have been many fairy stories, as I call them, over the years in various publications, magazines, etc. that's really in the, 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 the mindset of some enthusiasts who basically just weren't aware, not aware of, of, of reality. Yeah. Um, the book sets out its warts and all, um, the reality. I don't think I've gilded the lily at all. If uh, I thought we were barking up the wrong tree, I'd said so. And uh, equally so, if we were going down a successful route, that's also uh, recorded. Well, as the title of the book suggests, it's called No Admittance. There's only a select few people understand and know exactly what went on behind those doors. And they're sat with me here uh, yeah. talking about it. So uh, thank you for recording it all for the future and for all of us to enjoy watching this video and, of course, buying the book. No Admittance, you can get it through Paul Skeleton Books. So, Peter, thank you very much. My pleasure. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com. 